You're listening to Asylum Speakers, The Journey. I'm your host, Jazz O'Hara, and together with some very special guests, we'll be taking you on a journey across the world without you having to go anywhere. For this very special season of the podcast, we followed common migration routes taken by refugees and asylum seekers from Africa, the Middle East and Ukraine, all the way through Europe, documenting stories along the way. We spent time with people leaving their countries and everything behind them, to the volunteers and staff working alongside them, and the host communities in each of the migration hotspots we visited. Many of the people we spoke to along this journey are being supported by projects funded by Comic Relief's Across Borders programme, which, thanks to the donations from the UK public, invest in organisations supporting refugees and asylum seekers along these routes. These first-hand accounts are here to educate, inspire and debunk some of the common myths and misconceptions around migration today. Listen carefully because, for many of these people, this podcast is the first opportunity they've had for their important story to be heard. Join us as we transcend borders, nationalities, religions and languages to hear from the people with which we share this world, our worldwide tribe. Welcome back to episode five of The Journey, a six-part podcast series following migration routes from Africa, the Middle East and Ukraine to Northern Europe. So far this season, we have explored the reasons why people are leaving their countries. We've taken a look at what life looks like in the first safe countries they arrive to. We've delved into the risks that they face along their journeys, and we've heard about people being pushed back along the way. Today's episode is about what life looks like for people once they make it to their final destination. What is life like in their host country? What's new and difficult? What does integration look like? What does it even mean? What can we as listeners do to help with this process? Let's first head to Athens in Greece, where I was lucky enough to meet and become friends with Mutaza, a lovely teenage boy from Afghanistan. I first met Mutaza in a little Afghan restaurant just off a leafy square in Athens known as Afghan Square, as it's where the Afghan community in the city congregate and hang out. We were sitting outside eating an absolute feast of Afghan food, so you might hear some background noise, but let that transport you to this sunny little corner of Athens where you can get a chicken biryani for two euro, a freshly squeezed orange juice for one euro, and if you take the time, an amazing conversation for free. Anyway, let's start by hearing a bit of Mutaz's backstory to give you some context about how he got here to Athens. Mutaza left Afghanistan when he was 14 in the hope of providing for his family after the death of his father. And after a long and difficult journey, he ended up in Greece where he has decided to stay and try and rebuild his life. But integration here has not been easy for Mutaza. I'll let him tell you his story. My name is Murtaza, I'm from Afghanistan, and um, it's almost four years that uh, I'm living here in Athens as a refugee. 
So how old were you when you left Afghanistan? 14. Yeah, it was a difficult time. But, you know, when you face a difficulty, you have to find a way. Are you happy to talk about it? Like, tell us why you left Afghanistan? Yeah, of course. In Afghanistan, uh, when my father passed away, my mother had responsibility of taking care of us, five sisters and brothers. Mm -hmm. Big um, family. Yeah, big family. I told my mother, so I will go Iran and I will support my other brothers so they can uh, go to school and uh, continue what they want. That's why I came in Iran. I was working there and I supported my family for uh, three years. So hopefully I did something. And now my younger brother, he is an English teacher in our village. Wow. And he has uh, almost 65 students. It's amazing. Yeah, even though he is um, 17. What did you do in Iran? Well, in Iran, uh, if you ask an Afghan refugee, they, will, they won't say it was good because there isn't an opportunity to work. So I was working as a builder. Mm -hmm. I was working to... Um, in construction. Yeah, construction, exactly. Thank you. Also, I was working in a chicken factory where you produce eggs. Oh. Um, I was working as a tractor driver. It was difficult, but I did. Yeah. Did you miss your family? Of course, yeah. When you were so young, yeah, it must have been lonely, I imagine. Of course. I didn't have a childhood at all, even in Afghanistan, because the situation was tough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what made you decide to leave Iran? Not having uh, freedom, opportunities. In Iran, if you go out and police catch you, they will send you to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. I didn't have freedom at all and no opportunities uh, to get education. I wasn't able to go to school and that's why uh, I left Iran. And then you went to Turkey? Yeah, um, I've been in Turkey for one month. 15 days in prison and then uh, 15 days I was free. But why did they put you in prison? Because uh, I came uh, across the border mm -hmm. so the police put us in, in the prison because we, were, uh, we came illegally. Yeah. How was that? Tell us about that. Oh my god. You had to sleep on the ground. And then after 15 days you thought I'm going to try and go to Greece. Yeah. Tell us about that. How did you get here? Okay. We came by boat scary journey in the middle of the sea with nothing if something happened you're you're gone you know, just like this when you arrived to Greece what did you expect from Europe and from being here first thing I was hoping was the humanity mm -hmm. freedom education opportunities when I came in Greece everything is different new new mm -hmm. people new places new languages mm -hmm. and i didn't know at all no english no greek slowly slowly i get used to it did you have somewhere to live in a camp uh-huh when mutaza first got to greece he arrived to the island of lesbos and lived in the notorious moria camp when i came in lesbos there was a camp i think you have heard about it moria there was it. yeah i think it, it built for Two thousands people, but we have been seven thousands. It was a real tough situation. Uh, but 
we handled it somehow. Yeah, I've been there for two months. I was the lucky one. Then Mutaza told me the shocking story of when he was kicked out of his accommodation in Greece at the age of 15. In Greece, they have a rule when uh, for, for, uh, for minors. When you live in a shelter or uh, in a place, you have uh, social workers, lawyers and people to take care of you. And they have a, a rule when you are not allowed to be outside for, I think it's uh, 24 hours. I think. You can't leave for longer than 24 hours? Exactly. Right. And I was late for two hours. Okay, they kicked me out of the hotel. They didn't even allow me to go and take my stuff from inside. I sent my friend to, to bring my uh, bag. They didn't even think that, okay, I don't have anywhere to go. They said how, how old were you at this point? 15. It was really, really difficult because I had to sleep under the trash in the middle of nowhere. I came in Athens. I've been living in an in illegal apartment here. Mm-hmm. In, again, police catch me up and put me in the prison for one month. Again. Oh my God, um, so you went to prison in Turkey and in Greece. Yeah. Wow. And you were still 15? Yeah. Here in Greece, it was tougher than, than Turkey because we have been living uh, 10 people in, in, in a room, which was, I think, 4 by 4, by 4, four by 3, like small small, small place. Mm-hmm. Just one room with, with, with nothing. Okay, just um, um, four beds, uh, beds on top of each other. It's so impressive to me. I'm sure it's the same for you guys, like to hear this story and to think about how much you've experienced and been through and achieved and you're 18 years old, it just makes me think, what are you going to do in the next 18 years of your <laughs> life, you know? Actually, it was the hardest part because I was young, I didn't know anything and I didn't have anyone to, to you know, to help me out. Um, but um, it's the same story if you ask any of them, the, the refugee who lives here, any of them, they will say, even hard, they will, they will have, you know, much sad story maybe a difficult story more than my, th- than me what are some of the challenges that young people young refugees face in greece my own experience the most challenging things is losing themselves imagine you are alone and you have nothing nowhere to go no money no job no education nothing when they face the difficulties, that those challenges, they lose themselves. It's hard, it's not hard, it's sad. Because um, you have no one to care about you. No one knows where you sleep, no one knows what you eat, no one knows what you think, what you feel. And this makes us, you know, break our, our mental, our heart. And when you're a, a broken person, you can't do anything. Beautifully said. Very beautifully said. Thank you for sharing that. I totally understand because, you know, you grow up, it sounds like, with a loving family who definitely knew where you slept and cared about you. And of course. Do you stay in contact with them? Yeah, I do. Yeah? Yeah. I don't know if you have experience or no, but for me, for everyone, living far away from their family when they're, they're young, and when you sleep or when you have a problem, you wish you have your mother, you have your, your, your dad to be beside you and 
think about you, take care of you. Even though when you're uh, getting sick, you have no one to, to say, how are you, how do you feel, what do you feel, do you need anything? And this is the most difficult thing. Because. To look after you and put their arms around you, whether that be physically or exactly. emotionally. And do you feel like after a few years in Athens, you have that here with friends, people that you've got to know? Do you have a community or not really? Actually, uh, I have only three friends and one of them passed away. Two of them are living uh, far away from here. One of them is living in, in UK and one of them in Switzerland. We don't have a physically a relationship, but we're talking through mm. the phone. Um, but they're there, you know. Yeah. Do you think that your stay in Greece is your future here, do you think? Uh, I'm planning to stay here because I love Greek people. Yeah. I love Greek weather. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's definitely better than Swiss or UK weather, that is for sure. Yeah. You get the sunshine here. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Okay, that's beautiful. And you, you're learning Greek as well, right? Yeah, I'm learning Greek. Do you have your asylum here? Yeah, I got my asylum. So do you think that in the future you'll be able to bring any members of your family or it's no, not possible? Um, it's impossible. Okay, yeah. so hopefully one day you'll be able to see them. Do you think in Afghanistan? Or? Not in Afghanistan because I'm not able to, to go back. travel Afghanistan. Maybe in Iran mm -hmm. or around Tajikistan. Yeah, in a neighboring country. Yeah. I hope so, I hope so. Yeah, thank you. There is another thing which is uh, about work. In Greece there is no opportunities mm -hmm. which uh, make uh, young people vulnerable. Mutaza went on to highlight just how vulnerable and open to sexual exploitation young refugees like him are here in Athens. In 2020 when I came here in this park, I've been uh, sleeping here for two nights. People came here. If they came and see you, you're sitting here, they will definitely understand that you don't have to go. You don't have a place to go, okay? Yeah. They will say, okay, I will give you uh, this amount of money. You have to go with me for sexual things. Uh -huh. Okay, I, I will let you sleep in, in my house. Greek people? Yeah, Greek people. Mm -hmm. Most of them are Greek people. Uh, not the young people, uh -huh. they're, they're old. They're not women, they're men. Uh -huh. Okay? I had a friend, okay, but no, he, he's not here now. He didn't have anywhere to go, no house, nothing. He didn't have a, a, another choice because he, he had to do that. After a few weeks, he got sick. How do you feel when you walk past this park now that has those memories for you? It was a good lesson. It was that's a good teacher. If the things that difficult to not kill you, it will make you strong. I think it's something yeah. like, like... If it a, doesn't kill you, it yeah, makes you stronger. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. This, yeah. <laughs> I didn't give up because uh, I had family. In hope of visiting my family one day, in hope of keeping them safe, make sure they have what they want, make sure my younger brothers, sister, they go to school, whatever they want. Um, those things makes you stronger. I said to myself, okay, if you want to give up, okay, give up, go and sleep on the street and go um, drink alcohol, drug, everything what you want. And the other option is to do what you can, to do your, your best. 
I chose that option, the second option, which was the, to try to learn something. Um, and that's where I learned computer science. I told myself, okay, you have to learn something in order to, to achieve what you want. And what is your goal for the future? Okay, to have my own business, mm-hmm. to have my family. There you have a story of the struggles of integrating into a European country for a young Afghan like Mutaza, even with his incredible resilience, perseverance and drive to succeed. Back in the UK, I caught up with Annika, the founder of an amazing organisation called Host Nation, which is a befriending service matching newly arrived refugees and asylum seekers with local people in London, Manchester and Newcastle. Annika shares some beautiful, hopeful stories of how integration can look and what we all stand to gain from welcoming and connecting with refugees and asylum seekers. So my name's Annika Elwes and I founded Host Nation about five years ago now in 2017. Suddenly there was this massive surge of refugees arriving across the Mediterranean into Europe and people wanted to do something. Um, And it seemed to me, because I'd had some experience of befriending through an organization called Freedom From Torture, that befriending was just an extraordinary thing to do. It was just such a simple idea, which is, you know, you make introductions between people that you hope will get on, and then you leave it up to them. And there wasn't really very much volunteering of that sort that was around. It was quite hard to volunteer to work with refugees. And that had been my experience, because I had been volunteering for 10 years previously. And so I thought, okay, well, why can't we use digital technology to sort of scale up befriending opportunities, both for volunteers and for refugees and asylum seekers? And Um, Although this analogy is not to go too far, but, you know, to follow the kind of, I suppose, the way in which online dating has transformed dating, to use digital technology to be able to really scale things up so that you can make a lot more matches and a lot more connections between people. So that was the kind of genesis of Host Nation five years ago. And um, we've been going in London for five years, but now we've also opened up in the northeast and the northwest and Greater Manchester and Newcastle and Gateshead. So we've got three hubs and yeah, it's exciting. I love it. I think it's such an amazing concept. So do people liken it to a kind of Tinder for refugees and host communities? Or do you want to steer away from that? I think I want to steer away from that because, you know, online dating doesn't always have the most kind of positive connotations. And yeah, you definitely don't get to swipe and choose. Okay. (laughs) Not a surface level. Of course, you know, dealing with people who've been through quite traumatic experiences and, you know, not necessarily classified as being vulnerable adults but you know we have we are very respectful of the fact that matching has to be done carefully and you know a lot of safeguards and things need to be in place because you don't want people who have very little and have had difficulty building relationships and difficulty with trust quite understandably because mm-hmm. of the journeys that they've had which you've been covering and you, you know you really want to make sure that you're matching them with a genuine humanitarian who's got their best interests at heart so you know, I mean, online dating, okay, you can have a date and immediately decide, okay, this isn't for me, I'm not carrying on. But we want to try and make matches where actually they click when they first meet mm-hmm. and that there's real potential for it to turn into some kind of sustainable friendship. And so how do you do that? What's the process? <laughs> well, the process is to just really talk to people and have conversations with everyone involved, whether it's 
the person, the organisation that might have referred the refugee or asylum seeker to have a conversation with, uh, I prefer to say a refugee friend, but we like to talk to them as well once they've been referred to get a sort of sense for what what would they like to do? You know, what are their interests? What what's their background? We don't want to know about what forced them to flee, or we don't want to, we don't want to, them to have to relive any kind of traumatic mm-hmm. experiences because actually that's none of our business. What happened to them? So we're very much talking about the current, which is you know where do they live? What are their interests, hobbies? What are things they like to do? Mm-hmm. What experiences have they had of London so far? What new experiences would they like to have? You know, if they had a profession or something in the past, then we like to learn about that and about their areas of expertise in order to make a good match. Because it's quite nice, you know, if you get someone who was, I don't know, an academic, let's say we've had a few academics, particularly from Iran, who've been referred to us. Then it's quite nice to have a look to see if we've got somebody who's in academia, mm-hmm. who we might be able to match them with, who can not just befriend them, but help them think about how they can perhaps resume their careers or resume their, their professional lives. Uh, or we get somebody who's passionate about music and then we want to match them with someone else who's passionate about music. Or it might be someone who's really into football and then we like to know what team they support and then we find out, you know, if we can find a befriender who perhaps supports the same the same club or somebody who they might be able to play five-a-side football in the park with. And we've made some extraordinary matches. You know, we start with kind of geography. Do they live relatively close to one another in whichever city it is? Because it's quite hard if you match somebody and the logistics of getting around is just Mm -hmm. kind of... There is age, there's gender. So, for example, we would never match a female refugee or asylum seeker with a male befriender. We would only ever match them with um, female befrienders. But we have an awful lot more female befrienders than we do male anyway. You know, if people are really into cycling, for example, and our refugee friend has a bike, possibly through the Refugee Bike Project, you know, we partner with them and help them get bikes and then they can cycle around together and do all sorts of things. And yeah, we've got all sorts of great stories of people who've found common ground and really, you know, made a new friend. It can be really transformative, actually both ways and that's what's so beautiful here is that we've all got something to gain from this kind of relationship with someone who might have a different background or different upbringing or different ideas about life or different experiences you know and that's what so many of our befrienders tell us we very much kind of back off and let people get to know one another and work out what they'd like to do and develop their relationship in whichever way feels right. I mean, for us, the most important thing is we are introducing two individuals. This is not about, you know, we don't talk, we don't have clients or service users. You know, we have friends. Mm -hmm. That's how we talk about them. The most important thing is for them to get to know one another as individuals and to treat each other as equals and just see where their relationship, you know, goes. Mm -hmm. Our feeling is that there's no point being kind of prescriptive about it because, that's not the way life works and everyone's it's different. everyone's different and it's all about personalities and chemistry and it's just such a wonderful concept to me and so simple and so obvious because you know we all need a friend in a new place that might know the lay of the land a bit better london is a difficult city to navigate you know geographically but also just culturally and having no point of contact within the local community I see in my own family how impactful that is for integration. You know, I have my four foster brothers who all come from different countries. And I'm sure that, you know, being dropped into a British family was very difficult at first, but has also 
enabled them to understand nuances of our culture in a way that they might otherwise have struggled with. It is about um, cultural navigation Mm -hmm. um, and English language practice, Mm -hmm. because I think that that's really hard too. And actually having an English-speaking friend who is non-judgmental and you can just practice English conversation, it's kind of invaluable. I mean, a lot of our refugee friends say, you know, that after three months, they say their English has improved a lot Mm -hmm. just as a result of, of chatting to their befriender. So many things that, you know, you or I wouldn't even think about with the English language. Like my brother said to me the other day, why do you get in a car, but on the bus? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I don't yeah. know. I, I know don't there's know. so many inconsistencies, <laughs> aren't there? That's what a lot of befrienders say, you know, that actually what Host Nation has given them the chance to do is to meet someone they would never otherwise mm-hmm. have met. And it's really two-way. They've learned so much. And often they're really inspired by their refugee friends because so many of the refugees that we come across are extraordinarily resilient. They've been through so much, still positive about life. And they are. They're a real inspiration. You realise that when people can be quite positive and yet they've had so little, it makes you look at your own life and realise how incredibly lucky you are. Absolutely. It gives you some perspective outside of our own little bubbles. And I'm so grateful to my brothers for that. I'll tell you a quick story that just brought this to light again. So I have three Muslim brothers and two Arabic speaking brothers, but they're all from different countries. So the two Arabic speakers are from Sudan and from Libya. And they were both at home and my Sudanese brother has just passed his driving test. So he had a scooter and he was selling it. And so a guy came to buy it and my Libyan brother and my Sudanese brother invited this guy who had come to buy the scooter in for dinner. And thankfully, my mum is very happy with that. You know, she's like, absolutely, of course, you know, no problem at all. But we were talking about how in England that would not be a very normal thing to do. If someone had come to buy something off you through Gumtree or whatever it was, it would be unlikely that you would end up sitting down and having dinner together. And actually, it was just a really lovely exchange and experience. You know, being invited into a British home for a lot of our refugee friends, it's a really, really big deal. And whilst we always say to our befrienders, Build up a bit of a relationship first. And if you think, you know, you're getting on well and it feels like the natural thing to do to invite them back for a meal or to invite them to meet your family and friends, then, of course, by all means, do that. And for our refugee friends, that is the single most kind of transformative Mm -hmm. moment is when they were invited into a home or they were invited to join their befriender for Christmas. Those moments, those shared cultural moments are often when they end up saying, he's like my brother. Well, she's like my sister. You know, there are quite a few schemes for unaccompanied minors, mentoring schemes, organizations like Hope for the Young and Young Roots and befriending schemes. But there wasn't really anything for adults. And it just struck me that there were so many people over the age of 18 who are lonely and socially isolated and who could so, so benefit from just having a friendly face that was in contact with them at least once a week. And what does that mean for some of the people that you have matched? I'd love to hear some of these stories. Uh, if there's any that come to mind that kind of highlight to you how powerful that connection can be, it would be amazing to hear any anecdotes. Oh, we've got so many. <laughs> we are almost kind of inundated with just wonderful positive feedback. We were referred somebody who was eight months pregnant, quite a young African woman who 
Somebody who had befriended her in Luton referred her to us and said she's moving to London. She knows nobody. She's eight months pregnant. She was living in, she was moved into a hotel, one of the temporary hotels, not that far from Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. Anyway, we found her a young friend who was in her mid-twenties. And very soon, almost immediately after we'd done a video introduction, she went into labour. And so she just called up her befriender, who hadn't even met her face to face. She'd only met her through this WhatsApp video introduction that we'd done. And she went straight to Chelsea and Westminster. And she was there throughout the night. And she was by her side when she gave birth to a little baby girl. You know, and, and actually she has unfortunately moved away now, but she's kept in touch with her friend. And she's also put her friend in touch with friends of hers who had had babies and were able to donate lots of baby equipment and baby clothes and things like that. And we've just recently rematched her with uh, another befriender who's got a baby of about the same age. Well, it was just around Christmas time. So we were just thinking, oh God, this is like a sort of nativity story. It is, it should be a film. (laughs) I asked Annika about the challenges for her befriending service. And she told me about a heartbreaking home office policy that I've also come across many times through my work. Yeah, we've had an increasing number of cases who during that kind of three month initial period of befriending are then sent at short 24 hour notice Mm. to Hull or to somewhere where they know no one. They don't even know where it is. Mm. And the Home Office don't tell them because they're afraid that they won't go. So literally they're given 24 hours notice in some cases and a car turns up and drives them Mm. and dumps them wherever. And then we get to hear this afterwards. They get in contact and say, I'm sorry, but I'm now in Hull. And that makes it pretty hard to maintain a relationship with our befriender who's, let's say, in Streatham. I mean, our befrienders do try and keep in contact. And we also try to signpost them to refugee support organisations in the places where they may have been moved to. But yeah, that's become one of the problems, actually, is this kind of arbitrary moving of people from one place to another. And if they're asylum seekers, they don't really have any recourse. Well, they certainly don't have any recourse to public funds if they don't go where the Home Office Mm -hmm. tell them they have to go. So they don't really have much choice or agency. Integration is held up as, you know, if you don't do what we say and you don't go to where we tell you to go to or where we found cheap accommodation, because that is one of the main criteria is they want to move people to where housing is a lot cheaper. Mm But it means if you don't do that because it's not in the best interests of you and your family for various personal reasons, then you're told, well, then you won't get any integration support. So the whole thing is offered as a package, you know, it's all or nothing. That is very problematic. I think the fact that a lot of refugees and asylum seekers do end up being housed in some of the poorest and most deprived boroughs of our cities, whether that's Manchester or Newcastle or London. And that those areas are often the areas which have had the highest levels of COVID, that have high levels of racial discrimination, where it's harder for them to be accepted, where there are quite levels of, high levels of deprivation and poverty. It's harder to get work. And there's a certain amount of resentment in some of those areas. So it is hard to integrate. And often these are areas inevitably become quite segregated. So they find themselves existing within their own communities in these areas where it's very difficult to get to know English people. So they end up in these poorer boroughs of our cities. 
they haven't got the money. You know, if it costs twelve pounds fifty to get a day pass to come into London, and they're living on five pounds a day mm-hmm. national asylum support, they can't even afford to travel in. So they haven't really experienced central London. You know, they won't have been to the British Museum. I mean, the British Museum is free, but a they don't feel confident to go to somewhere like that on their own, um, and b they've got to get into Zone One, and that's quite an expensive process. So. A lot of friending is about helping them to have more positive experiences of London, to go and see the sights. I mean, we always say the best thing that a befriender can do is put a smile on their refugee friend's face. A lot of our befrienders just tell us they're quite inspired by their refugee friends and it's opened their eyes too. And there's been this sort of real cultural exchange. And I love it as well when we get feedback like, my refugee friend has been teaching me Arabic in return for me helping them practice English, or he or she has uh, shown me how to make Nigerian food and we've cooked together and, you know, things like that, just those sorts of cultural exchange moments. But it does involve, it does mean that the people really who are likely to make the best befrienders have to be quite culturally open Mm. to meeting new people and having new experiences and listening and being interested in other people's worldview. We had one befriender who said actually the thing that she found most of an eye-opener was the fact that she'd always lived in a sort of bubble of kind of liberal values and she was matched with someone who came from quite a traditional Muslim background and was naturally actually quite homophobic and had certain views about women and women's position in society. He had been given, and she said that first of all, she kind of wanted to almost convert him to her way of thinking. But she said actually, the most valuable experience for her was just listening to him and where he came from and having conversations about their different worldviews and not necessarily coming to blows over it, just being able to talk about it and talk about it where it came from and her being able to explain to him why she felt the way she did, but also the fact that he felt that she would listen to kind of where he was coming from. And that is it, right? That is key, that you can have respect and love for one another without having the same religion or values or ideas about life or worldview. You can be different in your belief system and maintain that yeah, respect. Yeah, I know for sure. And that's exactly <laughs> what she said, was that she learned that she could actually like someone who held some social views that she found quite abhorrent. Mm-hmm. I think that that's really interesting too, because as you say, it really kind of opens your mind and makes you realise that you can have a lot of different sorts of friendships. You don't have to all be like-minded to get on with one another. Because after all, as you say, we're all human. Yeah, and how boring would that be? I love having friends that are different from me for that reason. Mm. It's only going to expand our And I think that's that's so key to integration as well, you know, going back to uh, what we were talking about earlier, which is, you know, what we see Host Nation as being about is facilitating these kind of intercultural relationships amongst people who wouldn't otherwise have met. Mm -hmm. And and that's a really key part of integration is getting to know other people and getting to understand them and respect them and treat them as individuals. Refugees and asylum seekers are just labelled by their immigration status. Mm-hmm. You know, I am a refugee, I'm an asylum seeker, and they're kind of like a home office statistic. 
It's very dehumanizing, mm. the whole process of trying to get kind of leave to remain in this country. And I've heard it more than once that our refugee friends, when we've asked them about the impact of having a befriender on their life, they've said, it's made me feel human again. That's what we can offer. We can offer that kind of humanity and that ability to have a laugh together or, you know, discuss things or that's what being human is all about, really. And also just having someone who cares, you know, who will check in on you and show you that... You're not alone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they want to know that you're okay. So Annika went on to introduce me to one of her many successful matches, a 21-year-old Eritrean boy called Afawoki or Afi, and a 31-year-old from London called Henry. She told me about first making the match. So I seem to remember that Henry suggested somewhere around South Ken. He and I met first and then Afawoki came along a few minutes later. And of course, we didn't really know what one another looked like. So we were looking for a for um, an Eritrean, a young Eritrean, <laughs> and sure enough, he came bouncing along. We had an ice cream or something, or maybe we had a wrap. I can't, I can't quite remember. <laughs> and Henry and Afwaka just kind of started just really hitting it off, really got on. And so after about twenty minutes or so of getting the kind of conversation going, I kind of ducked out yeah, I can and, leave now my work um, is done yeah. yeah and then they went off I think to go and have a walk around South Ken and then yeah sure enough they were kind of like meeting up regularly to kick football around I think both of them quite sporty mm-hmm. I remember them sending me a photograph of the two of them sort of by the lake in Hyde Park where they'd met up and were doing things and it's just wonderful to hear you know that's exactly that sort of model relationship in a way After speaking to Annika, I actually went to Henry's house in Notting Hill to meet him and Afi and Henry's partner and new baby uh, for breakfast one Sunday morning. Henry made me a smoothie and an avocado toast and Afi sat on the sofa playing with the baby and they started telling me the story of how they first met through Annika's befriending service, Host Nation. We met with Host Nation Almost three years ago. Kezinte. Yeah, we went for a walk in Hyde Park. Yeah, Hyde Park. We walked Hyde Park. Then after that, just became friends. We swap our detail and we start playing football together. Yeah, I think we were both more nervous when Annika was there. Do you remember? Yeah. (laughs) She was there and I think we were both like, hello. (laughs) I was relaxed at that time. I was less relaxed. I was relaxed (laughs) because I definitely wanted to do it. But I think... It's like before you meet anybody, you don't know what it's going to be like. And I think if you're honest, you know, if someone has come from a country with very difficult circumstances and had a very difficult journey, you know, you never know how that person will be. And though you want to be doing like the right thing and helping someone, you know, it's different to say meeting someone that you're from a background or backstory that you're really accustomed to. So I wasn't nervous necessarily in a negative way, but it was definitely like new ground. It's unfamiliar. Yeah. I asked Henry and Afi what originally attracted them to signing up to Annika's befriending service. To know more about the UK and the culture, history. I think what attracted me to it is, you know, I was like 24, trying to, you know, grow up or whatever. Like, it's not like, I felt a bit, I didn't really feel like I'd 
necessarily take something on in a way in, and really help someone because I was really young and I didn't know how I would do that. And I just felt the idea of meeting someone and f- forging a great relationship and naturally a friendship happening was just something I was really attracted to doing and hopefully we can both help each other. And I thought it was just something that I was really interested in doing and have since told a load of friends who have also done it. But I think I wanted to do something out, you know, more than just my live my own kind of selfish life. But I was at an age where, you know, going to work in a and kind of organization with which helping people or took a really active role in my life was something I, I was a bit apprehensive to do at that age. Whereas mm-hmm. establishing a great friendship and growing it naturally was something I thought was really cool. You find that hard when you first came to England to meet English people and to make friends with local people. Yeah, at the first few months I found it a bit difficult. Even at, at that place where I live, I couldn't meet anyone. Then after a few months I start I start college, then I meet some people from different countries. Sudan, Somalia, Egyptian. It's from a lot of different countries. But not so many English people? After a few years. Is there anything that you remember in the beginning that was really new and different and strange and hard? Yeah, the um, food. The food? food. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I went to the shop center, shopping. Then I don't know what to buy. At that time, I don't know how to cook as well. So I found it. Difficult, but I learned. What do you like to cook now? Yeah, rice with chicken, mm. lamb, yeah, mm. some vegetable, vegetables as well. What do you think you've learned from each other? Yeah, we learn a lot of things about the British culture. He <laughs> <We> learned <laughs> about Africa or Eritrea, about the culture and food. Tell me about the first time you had Eritrean food, Henry. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was quite early on. I didn't want to come across as rude to But I particularly liked the meat, but found the injera breads quite challenging to, to take down. So I did a bit of shuffling them around my plate, but I don't think Afi actually minded very much. And we have since been to a lot of different restaurants, which has been good. You didn't particularly like the... Um, was it the Vietnamese food that I took? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I found it. No, it's, the food is delicious, but I found it difficult with <laughs> the, the, the chopsticks. Oh, the chopsticks. Yeah. yeah. That was funny, yeah. I mean, fair enough. That is hard. <laughs> it's hard, yeah. For anyone here who is yet to try Ethiopian or Eritrean food, injera is a spongy bread, which I personally absolutely love and would definitely recommend everyone try. So Henry went on to explain how much meeting Afi has enriched his life. Because Afi is younger, he's 10 years younger than me, but mm. like his mentality just in general life is quite, I found it quite inspiring. Like he's never really phased by anything. It's also harder, you know, for him coming to this country without that many legs up to make things happen. But you always do, like, you know, you've got your jobs and you've yeah. got your university stuff and, you know, you're doing your mechanical stuff now but I found it really like refreshing that he doesn't get pissed off or angry or like you know he could easily be a massive victim or like blame this country but he's always really chilled and things always work out really well for him and like I found that quite learning because like you know my life like 
if something doesn't happen, I can be impetuous or get angry. And it's like, well, it's probably not that big a deal. And then when you talk to someone like Afi, he's like, you know, I've, I've seen some stuff that you don't need to worry about that. And, you know, he's very much saying to me often, like, chill out, like, you're being ridiculous. And it's, it's, it's a nice, it's a good thing to, to think about, I think. And, like, his attitude to life is good because of, I guess, what he's been through. But also he just seems quite wise despite being a lot younger. You agree with that? <laughs> do you think it gives you like a renewed perspective on your own life yeah for sure i mean i would not like i didn't know a huge amount about eritrea before i met afi but that was kind of part of the, the joy of it and yeah i think as i said you can you can easily think that things are bad when actually you've got a lot of great things that you should be grateful for and then when you speak to afi and you know it's not like we talk that much about afi's journey but every now and again he'll mention something that happens for example in Calais or in Libya and you're like shit you know maybe that isn't that big a deal and you know I thought it would maybe be a bit the other way around that I'd be there to being a bit older than Afian from the UK to be helping him and it's what's always fun is he's like just relax my friend. <laughs> you thought that yeah you would actually be able to support him and in a way that that's yeah, been like a mutual mutual definitely, thing. That... Definitely and like you know there have been great ways we can help each other you know like I helped Afi get a job at a garage or we, we do stuff together here, but it's, it's interesting, certainly on the way of thinking, that he definitely helps me a lot more, even though he's 10 years younger than I am and not from here. So tell me about some of the things that you guys have done together over the last three years. We play football. Mm-hmm. A lot. A lot of time, but we went to Tottenham Stadium. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. To watch a game. Yeah, to watch a game. Mm-hmm. Afi turned up in a three-piece suit and I was in tracksuit. So <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. Yes, Afi. <laughs> but that was cool. That was cool, yeah. Who did they play? Everton? Tottenham with the Watford. Watford, yeah. Watford, yeah. Did yeah. they win? Yeah. yeah. At that time, Tottenham won. Okay, good. Yeah. Who do you support? I support Chelsea. Okay. It's weird, it's a bit like dating someone, obviously. It's not romantic, but they try to think of like fun stuff to do. So we've done lots of, you know, we went bowling. Um, I tried to get Afi to come ice skating, but he said, absolutely not. We go for lots of walks and meals and, you know, it's nice. And then you come to the cinema a few times with my family. Afi's very, very reliable. So either I'll drive down there and we'll hang out or he comes, you know, he came down here the other day and hung out with the baby. It's pretty relaxed and easy obviously listening to Afi's journey like how he got here I, I remember those was, he was telling me about what it was like trying to get from Calais to here and you know how how dangerous it was and how difficult you know the process was and literally like the week later I was just on the Eurostar driving back and I was like fuck this is ridiculous because I'd literally just heard about how it was for him and I was like I can't believe that it's like that for us and like that for Afi Afi is very, he's achieved quite a lot in terms of when, what he's set his mind to do. It's been quite impressive to watch and with like zero help from anyone in terms of, obviously there was the exam courses, mm-hmm. um, there was then the mechanical driving levels, which looks quite difficult. Again, a lot in English. He did his driving test the other day, got a job very easily at Starbucks. He's looking for another job now, has sorted himself with a mechanics job. It's quite impressive, like, how quickly he's done all of that. And yeah. again, like, when you think back to a lot of 
Brits age 18 to 21, you know, they can barely tie their shoelaces. Yeah, it's very true. <laughs> so, then they don't know what they want to do. And yeah. you, so you want to be a mechanic? Is that what you... Yeah. Okay, cool. That's where knowing people in the UK makes such a difference. Mm. Like, as I said, I was able to help Afi get a job down the road at a mechanic. But now he's looking for one in Surbiton and he's having to go like door to door. That's the real challenge. Like, as I said, Afi's achieved so much here in terms of when he's, say, in college or in an exam situation because he can take responsibility for that and do it but you also just see how lucky you are if you do live here and you know you maybe know someone down the road yeah. and you can get into say that garage to get a job or ask someone to ask someone you have that I feel, yeah with Afi you can imagine what it's like for someone who just lives over. so I think that's where you know hopefully I can help a bit but also there is that massive disadvantage that you have if you've just arrived here literally Afi and I are great mates just like hanging out with mates it's just we wouldn't be typical friends because we're from different countries. But it's really not been in any way like a challenge, which, you know, you th- think coming in, maybe it will be. It's been great. And, and it's really nice to meet someone different and do stuff together. So I would just encourage people to try it. I think you gain loads from it. I don't think there's much to be scared of, really. I would like to suggest the people who join the host nation I mean, they will learn each other and they can support each other. You hit the nail on the head that you guys are great friends and you have a lot in common, but actually you wouldn't, your paths probably wouldn't have crossed if you hadn't have experienced, if you hadn't have found Toast Nation. And it's the same, I think, for me with my brothers is that I wouldn't have known them were it not the circumstances yeah. that we're in. And I'm so grateful that I do because celebrating each other's differences and learning about each other, like what's more exciting than that in life? I would always say the same with, it's a different situation, I guess. But the first time when Mez came to my family, everyone was like, oh, you're so lucky because it's worked so well. And like, it's been peaceful and it's been good. But four times over it's been the same in that like sometimes it's it's not always easy and it has its ups and downs but actually like people people are fucking cool you know like it's interesting to meet new people and like everyone has their things and their ups and downs but like yeah four times over it's been it's been awesome so there you have a beautiful hopeful story of integration Henry and Afawoki represent how mutually beneficial connection between refugees and host communities can be. Unfortunately, this is not the case across the board. Let's go back to Susie, who, like Afi, is also Eritrean, but she is currently living in Cairo, in Egypt. She explains some of the barriers to integration that she has faced there. Do you have any Egyptian friends or any connections with the Egyptian community here? Or isn't it's a very separate? Very separate. Because I went to supermarkets to buy this apple. Mm-hmm. It's two pounds. The other Egyptian, she wants to buy apple. He will sell for her two pounds. For me, he will save five pounds. Really? Yeah. I thought that was only us because we're white, so they're like, okay, you can pay ten pounds. <laughs> no, your accent is different. You want to pay more? They treat you in a bad way. Like maybe with yours it can be different, but with us it's very disrespectful. And but doesn't mean because I'm black or my accent is not much like the accent because it's not my language. 
they're supposed to be welcome people and supportive for their refuge, but they don't know what does it mean refuge. They, they think that we came here for vacation or for something else, but we didn't. We didn't. Mm-hmm. So that way, uh, when we try, even in marketing, when we ask something, they say double. When they knew that you are refuge, they treat you in a bad way. See? In, in both, it's not, we are not safe. Like, okay, if they knew that you are refuge, you leave your country because this, 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 they treat you in a bad way, in a dirt way. Like, you are not human like them. You are black, you are dirty. You don't, you don't have anything in your country. That's why you came to their country. They are not that much welcoming people. So, mm. yeah. so it's very hard to have Egyptian friends for us. Mm-mm. No, <laughs> why? <laughs> we don't, like, not all of them. Not all of them. We have people working with us here. They are very understandable and they know who we are and why we are here. There are some people not respectful. We face all the time harassment. I'm, I'm going, someone come and slap me. I don't have right to look back and say, what did you do? Why you do this? What makes difference, me and other Egyptian girls, what makes difference? Me and the Egyptian girl. From time to time we accept it, but if it's too much, you will hate it and you will do something about yourself. Mm-hmm. And from time to time you will hate living in Egypt. You will not have any hope like to work on yourself. The things that make us hate living in Egypt, the discrimination, races, being black, white, we forget it here. You are white, I'm black, we are equal. You treat me, I treat you well. Like you're nice, I'm nice. You're Christian or Muslim, you're fine. Like we don't judge, so we accept everything. And finally, some words on why host communities might react this way. From my friend Dalal, who works for UNHCR in Lebanon, back in that bustling coffee shop in Beirut. So... However, human reality is, and human nature is that when you are in distress and when you are in frustration, you tend to scapegoat someone. You tend to blame someone else for your misery or for your hardship, for your struggle. But there is hope. Talal talks about the small, quiet acts of kindness that we can all do in our everyday. The moments of hospitality, of reaching out and doing something, not for recognition, but to connect with another human being during their moment of need. I think by nature, acts of kindness are not very visible. They're the less, uh, the less visible acts. And from what I've witnessed and from what I see also like in my work and uh, in being in the field, I see this, I see landlords, for example, who just say, okay, just don't worry. Just be. Whenever you have the money, pay. If you do not have it, just you know, forget about it. Despite the situation. Mm. And they're the ones who, if you approach them and say, can I have an interview with you? They would say no. Yeah. You see? Because it comes from a very genuine place. It comes from a very human place that you cannot... It's not to be out there. <laughs> you know, it's not to be marketed. It's not to be promoted. But it, it is there. 
And there you have it. The biggest takeaway for me from all of these conversations was to continue to be open in each and every interaction and opportunity that we have to practice empathy throughout our day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asylum Speakers, The Journey, brought to you in collaboration with Comic Relief and organisations funded through Comic Relief's Across Borders programme. You can find out how to support Comic Relief's work at comicrelief.com. To find out more about the people in today's show, check out the links in the show notes. Also remember that I'm always open to thoughts and feedback. To get in touch, send me a direct message on Instagram at the Worldwide Tribe. Other actions you can take to support this podcast and join the Worldwide Tribe are to visit our shop and to buy a t-shirt or a hoodie, or you can donate. All details are in the show notes and in my Instagram bio. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate it, share it and leave a review. It helps more people to find this podcast and it helps me to keep bringing you these stories. The more people who come on this journey with us, the more connected we all become and the more we unite as one worldwide tribe. Big shout out to Alexander Wells at alexanderwells.co.uk for our audio production and original score and to Ez Stone for mixing this episode.